Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about the Priest of Forever Spring. In April 1222, a cohort of Chinese Taoist priests, led by the most senior among them, a venerable man of the cloth, already 74 years old, traversed the place called Termes. Termes is on the bank of the Amudaria River, and today on the border between Uzbekistan and Afghanistan. There's a theory that the name comes from the Greek word for heat, like the English word, thermal, courtesy of Alexander the Great, who had marched here with his Macedonians. The Chinese, though, were presumably unaware of the Greek linguistic connection. They had instead transliterated Termes into Tiamenguan, the Iron Gate Pass. So they passed through the Iron Gate and carried on into Afghanistan, into the Hindu Kush mountain range. Its name, of course, meaning Indian killer. The man they came to meet had set up temporary quarters here for himself and for his troops. He had marched all this way westward to fight the empire of Khwarazm, a state that no longer exists today, but is a part of Uzbekistan. And the priests had followed him all the way from the province of Shandong on China's east coast. Their leader, their teacher, had received an invitation from the man, which he couldn't refuse. Of course he couldn't refuse. The man who had invited him was the leader of the Mongols, whose personal name was Tiamujan, but who came to be known to the world as Genghis Khan. And the priest was also famous in his own time, although presumably less so than Genghis Khan, and he too would enjoy sufficient posthumous reputation as to become a household name among the Chinese. Although that would be centuries later, and it would be due to a work of fiction, so he couldn't have known it in his lifetime. His name was Qiu Chuzi, and he went by the priestly title Changchunzi or Changchun Zhenren, which means the priest of the long spring, or as I prefer to translate it, the priest of forever spring. Actually, Chou Chuzi wasn't his real name either, if by real name we mean the name given to him at birth. That name has been lost to history. But somehow we know his exact date of birth. February 10th, 1148. And we know he was born in Shandong. In 1166, when he was 18, Chou Chuzi turned to Taoism. The following year, 1167, he became a disciple of Wang Chongyang, the founder of the sect within Taoism called Chuanzhen Jiao or Chuanzhen Dao, the religion or the way of total reality. It was Wang Chongyang who renamed Chou Shuji as such and who gave him his priestly title, the Priest of Forever Spring. We should perhaps note here that 
It was common in pre-modern China for teachers to rename their students. This practice was not limited to Taoist masters and their disciples. Wang Chongyang then died in 1170, and Chou Chuji and his fellow disciples buried their master on Mount Zhongnan, one of Taoism's holy mountains. They continued their meditations and other religious practices, and they carried on spreading the message of the religion of total reality, so that their reputation grew over the ensuing years. In 1186, Chou Zhuji returned to Mount Zhongnan, which had become a sort of headquarters for the religion of total reality, to help to manage the sect's affairs there. Now, we should remember the historical background at this time. By 1127, the invasion from the north by the Jurchen people of the Jing Empire had forced the Song Dynasty to abandon northern China and to re-establish itself in the south as the Southern Song. You may remember some of this history from the series of episodes we did on the regimes. Contemporaneous with the Song Dynasty. So now, northern China, including Chou Chuji's home province of Shandong, and the province of Shanxi, which was where Mount Zhongnan is located, fell within the Jing Empire, not the Song. And so it was the Jing regime that people dealt with, if they had to deal with the state. In 1188. Emperor Shizong of the Jing invited Chou Shuji to go to the Jing capital, then called Yanjing and now called Beijing, Beijing, to perform various rituals. Chou Shuji ended up staying in Beijing for six months and met with the emperor three times, apparently receiving imperial favor. But Emperor Shizong died soon thereafter in 1189. Actually, about the same time, Chou Shuji left Beijing. The new emperor, Emperor Zhang Zong of Jing, seemed to be less friendly toward the religion of total reality, and restricted the sect's activities within Shanxi, its headquarters. So, in 1191, Chou Shuji left Shanxi. With some of his disciples to return to his hometown in Shandong in the east, where he turned his old family home into a monastery, and where he continued to preach. In 1203, the leader of the religion of total reality, Liu Chuxuan, who had also been a disciple of the founder Wang Chongyang, died. The sect's leadership passed to Chou Chuji. He would go on to lead the sect for twenty-four years, during which it reached the height of its influence. And as a religious leader, Chou Chuji was someone who could cross the borders between the different political regimes: the Jing Empire and the Song Empire, and eventually the Mongol Empire. Much as the Pope today can be welcomed in different countries and to enjoy influence everywhere he goes, Chou Chuji was someone who enjoyed influence in all the different empires. 
In 1211, he returned to Beijing, again at the invitation of the Jurchen Jing rulers. In 1214, a peasant rebellion rocked the province of Shandong. The Jing government asked Chiu Chuji to intercede, to help to persuade the rebels to put down their arms, which he was able to do, and for which the Jing rulers were very grateful. In 1216, Emperor Xuanzong of the Jing invited Chiu Chuji to meet with him at the former Song capital, now under Jing control, the city of Bianliang, or Kaifeng. But perhaps remarkably, Chiu Chuji decided that the emperor had been a bad ruler, and for that reason, declined the invitation. Then in 1219, the Song emperor, Emperor Ningzong, invited Chiu Chuji to go south to the Song capital, Lingan, today's city of Hangzhou. But again, Chiu Chuji felt that the man inviting him had been found wanting as a ruler. So again, he declined the invitation. Later in that same year, though, Chiu Chuji received yet another invitation from yet another ruler. The leader of the nomadic people, newly insurgent in the steppes of the far north, the Mongols. Chiu Chuji tried to say no, but the Mongol envoys insisted. Their leader, Genghis Khan, had written Chiu Chuji a letter expressing his sincere wish to meet with the priest. Chiu Chuji supposedly performed a ritual to seek the will of heaven. After apparently ascertaining that the gods wanted him to go on this journey, early in 1220, he agreed to go with the Mongol envoys, selecting 18 of his disciples to accompany him. Once again, he arrived in Beijing. But by this time, the Mongols had taken it from the Jing Empire, and it now functioned as the southern capital of the Mongol Empire. But he learned only after arriving. Genghis Khan, meanwhile, had left on a western campaign into Central Asia with the aim of subduing Khwarazm. Would Chiu Chuji be so kind as to follow the Great Khan to Central Asia? He didn't want to. He was, after all, 72 years old at this point, and not exactly eager for a long trek from Beijing to what is now Uzbekistan. He wrote a letter to Genghis Khan, asking if there was any chance the Great Khan would be back in Beijing anytime soon. Genghis Khan wrote back and said no. He was fully preoccupied with war in the West and couldn't return to Beijing. In the spring of 1221, Chiu Chuji gave in to circumstances and set out to continue his travels, exiting the Great Wall's Zhuyongguan Pass outside Beijing, entering Mongolia to meet with Genghis Khan's younger brother, seeing Ulaanbaatar, now Mongolia's capital, 
the Altai Mountains, the Zonggar Basin, and the Tianshan Mountains in what is now Xinjiang, before heading deep into the Western Lands, Central Asia. Late in 1221, they arrived in Samarkand. Samarkand had been one of the great cities of Central Asia. Alexander the Great himself longed to see it, which the Greeks at the time called Marakanda. The Mongols, however, had sacked the city only a year earlier in 1220, during which they killed. Everyone who took refuge in the citadel and the mosque, and they pillaged the city completely. When Marco Polo saw Samarkand several decades later, he would describe the recovering city as still one of the great cities of the area. But what Qiu Chuqi and his disciples saw, so soon after the city's devastation. Must have left a very different impression. A few months later, as I said at the top of this episode, Qiu Chuqi finally caught up with Genghis Khan, beyond Termes, beyond the Iron Gates, somewhere in the Hindu Kush. And Genghis Khan treated him with great respect. Three times he asked to meet with Qiu Chuqi, during which meetings. He asked the priest about Taoist teachings on longevity and how to live a healthy life. Let's not forget that Genghis Khan, born in 1162, was turning 60 himself at this point. No doubt, he felt his own age, felt the way he was no longer as agile on a horse as he once was as a young man, no longer as skillful at wrestling. No doubt, he felt his own mortality. Well, Taoism always claimed to know a thing or two about longevity. Indeed, there is no shortage of Taoist priests in Chinese history who claimed to know the secret to immortality itself. Qiu Chuqi, at seventy-four, apparently looked remarkably healthy and youthful. Indeed, he must have been quite healthy if he was able to make the long journey. And his title, after all, means "forever spring." And so Qiu Chuqi responded to the Great Khan's questions about health. But he was also quick to take the opportunity to advise Genghis Khan against the mass slaughter of human beings. Presumably, he was thinking about what he saw not too long ago in Samarkand, and he was able to say such things because he couched them in the form of health advice. It's bad for one's health to kill too many people unnecessarily. It's good for a ruler's health to exercise mercy and benevolence. Genghis Khan seemed to take his words to heart. Indeed, he ordered one of the advisers by his side, a kitan named Yelu Chutai, to note down in elegant Chinese the conversations between himself and the priest. Again, if you remember our episodes on the regimes contemporaneous with the Song Dynasty, 
You'll recall that the Khitan Liao Empire had been destroyed and replaced by the Jurchen Jing Empire. Yelu Chutai was a descendant of the Liao emperors, and so it made sense for him to go and work for the Jing Empire's ascendant enemies, the Mongols. Anyway, so Yelu Chutai already provided documentary evidence of these meetings between Genghis Khan and Qiu Chuqi. But as it turned out, one of Qiu Chuqi's disciples, the priest Li Zhichang, was also taking notes of his own, and not only of the meetings, but of their entire journey from eastern China to Afghanistan and back again. He eventually used the notes to write a travel log. The text was called Changchun Zhenren Xiaoji, or Records of the Western Journey of the Priest of Forever Spring. Interestingly, though, this text was then forgotten for the next five and a half centuries, and rediscovered from a large corpus of Taoist writings only in 1795. But even in Qiu Chuqi's own lifetime, the content of his conversations with Genghis Khan became widely known. Qiu Chuqi laboriously returned from Afghanistan to China in 1223, and lived out his remaining years within the territory of Mongol China. He died in 1227. Interestingly, just three days before, Genghis Khan also died. But in the ongoing war between the Mongols and the Jurchen Jing Empire, that wouldn't be finished until 1234. And perhaps also in the later Mongol conquest of Song China, ending in 1279, the Mongols supposedly pulled their punches just a little when it came to killing. And it was widely believed that Qiu Chuqi deserved some credit for this. The way he urged Genghis Khan to minimize civilian casualties was thought to have led the Mongols not to commit quite as many massacres as they would have wanted during their Chinese campaigns. This led to his sect, the religion of total reality, becoming the leading form of Taoism at the time. A later Ming Dynasty play imagined three Taoist priests of different sects meeting and comparing notes. One priest says, The magic of my sect is so great it can rescue a condemned soul from hell. The second priest says, The teaching of my sect is so great, it can save our disciples from ever falling into hell in the first place. The third priest, who was from the religion of total reality, says, Our grandmaster, Master Forever Spring, convinced the Mongol Khan not to kill everyone in the central plains and turn the place into a living hell. Hearing this, the first two priests conceded that the religion of total reality was the superior sect. Later in the 18th century, Emperor Qianlong also expressed the same view, praising Qiu Chuqi for perhaps saving millions of lives through 
a few well-chosen, persuasive words spoken to Genghis Khan at the right juncture. Of course, just how much effect Qiu Chuji's words really had, and how many lives could he be said to have saved, is impossible to know. But we should perhaps point out that if Qiu Chuji could be credited with saving a certain number of lives from Mongol slaughter in China, then it stands to reason that he could also be credited with saving lives in the Middle East and Europe. Let's not forget now that the Mongols invaded Europe, as we've talked about on this podcast. The Mongols raised places like Moscow and absolutely destroyed the European armies that confronted them at encounters such as the Battle of Legnica in 1241. How many Europeans survived because of Qiu Chuji, this priest they'd never heard of, representing a religion they'd never heard of, from a part of China they'd never heard of, and so distant that it might as well have been fantastical? Even so, as I said, Qiu Chuji most likely would not be a commonly known name by modern times, even among the Chinese, but for a work of fiction. The Legend of the Condor Heroes, by the great wuxia novelist Jin Yong, first serialized in Hong Kong newspapers between 1957 and 1959, included a fictionalized version of Qiu Chuji as one of its major characters. Then Jin Yong wrote a sequel, The Return of the Condor Heroes, that once again featured Qiu Chuji. Afterward, Due to the popularity of these novels and their endless adaptations as films, TV shows, and now video games, the name Qiu Chuji came to be uttered, surely without exaggeration, by hundreds of millions of consumers of these media. And so, if any proof were needed, the life of Qiu Chuji, as well as his life beyond death, as it were, exemplifies the power of words. First, there were the words that Qiu Chuji said to Genghis Khan in distant Afghanistan that might have saved lives. Then there were the words that Ye Lu wrote down, reporting on his conversations with Genghis Khan, as well as the travel log by Li Zhichang. And then, 700 years later, there were the words that Jin Yong wrote down about him, albeit in fictionalized form, in his novels. And with these words, Chinese history, Chinese memory, remembers the name Qiu Chuji. This has been MODG. Thank you for listening.